Hello, podcast world. I'm Rosemary McKernan. And I'm David McKernan. And this is the story of our family. The McKernans. Michelle, Peter, Vanessa, Rosemary, David, Rachel, Matthew, and Monica. Children of Stephen McKernan, born and raised in Toronto, Ontario, and Nora McKernan, child of the Bruce County. In this episode, we're featuring Matthew McKernan, born on November the 18th, 1988, one of the twins in our family. And we're going to be looking at Matthew's trials and tribulations as part of the story of our lives, kind of like a memoir. So Matt, welcome to the show. Um, as I said, Matt is a twin, uh, a twin to Rachel McKern, who we'll be interviewing on a later episode. And Matt, why don't we dive right into this and just uh, tell us a little bit what, about what you're up to these days. Uh, okay, so these days, well, it's winter time right now as we do this, this January, what, 24th? 24th. 2021. Um, so we're currently at my home uh, in the north along the Ottawa River in a very small hamlet called Du Rivière, um, which is French for two rivers. And this winter I'm basically just uh, overseeing the hiring for um, a company I work for, which is a tree planting company. Um, this coming season we're looking at about 30 million trees, so that'll be about 500 employees. Um, so yeah, my days are spent overseeing that and tinkering around the house and cross country skiing. Yeah. We actually all just came back in from an, a, a group cross country ski. I have to say it's really nice to, uh, to be here in Duravier, to be here in the Ottawa river in the Ottawa Valley, uh, to be with family, um, it's a really special place that we're, we're lucky to be at, and um, it's really special that you purchased this property and that you built it uh, to what it's become. So maybe we should start there and you just tell us a little bit about the first time you ever came here, what you thought of it, and how you ended up where we are today. Sure. Um, so I was 23. <clears throat> Actually, I was 22 when I first came here, and so that was 10 years ago. And basically, we, we, we stumbled across this place because we were working in the area, um, planting trees and brush cutting back in the bush. And we needed a convenient location to camp out in close proximity to where we were working. Um, so my boss at the time, which is the owner of the company I work for still, um, did a deal with the owners of this property. Uh, where they would cook for us and let us camp out down by the water inside a gigantic teepee that's situated that was situated beside the water. And I'll never forget, first, first night we got here, Epo, who was the owner of the property, um, had a big fire lit for us inside the teepee. Mm. So we, we, we showed up kind of late at night, and there was this big fire going in the teepee, and there was mattresses sprawled out all around the fire. Is it down by the water? Yeah, down by the water, okay, yeah. I think I remember where, where, where we had the one set up down yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and there was only a crew of about 12 of us, I think, and most of us just crashed in the teepee, and we would work. We would come up in the mornings, and Sue, Sue who was Epo's wife, she would cook for us um, in the cafe, which is one of the eight cabins that are on the property. <laughs> and um, we would go to work and we'd come back and we just fell in love with this place because it was right on the river. It was so beautiful. It is, it is so beautiful. And then um, 
Sue tragically passed away suddenly. Uh, her aorta, I think it was, um, suddenly burst one day on her way to town. And she, and she died uh, a few days later. And the family, there was five kids at the time, and, and Epo, um, he, he just decided that the property was too much for them. And <clears throat> ended up um, moving the family into, into Deep River, which is about half an hour from here. And then he put the property on the market, and this was the this was the next year. This was the year after the year that we that I just told you about. Where so we you were twenty three. Yeah, so I was twenty three when I approached Epo and said, "I see you've got the property for sale. I would really like to buy it." How did you know he had it for sale? There was a for sale sign. Okay. Yeah, as a real estate agent had a for sale sign out, out, out by the road. So you know, Epo loved us. Like he just loved uh, tree planters. He just loved what we what we do. And he just thought it was so cool that what we do, Epo was from Holland. So, you know, I don't know if there's much of a forestry industry in Holland, but he just, he just loved seeing young people working outside and, um, yeah, he just always took a liking to us as a group of tree planters. I think he has a real connection with wood too. Like he's a woodworker and, and you guys being forestry workers, I think there was something special there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, it, I had finished my season. It was September. I made, I earned, I earned $20,000 that, that summer. And I remember this well, because, um, I, I contacted Epo and I basically said to him, like, I don't have very much money, but I would love to buy this property. So maybe like we could do a deal where I buy the property from you after a period of a couple of years, you know, and during those years, you let me pay it down a little bit. <clears throat> um, because right now at 23 years old, I wouldn't qualify for a mortgage. And he was open to that. So um, I called Jack one day and I said, Jack, I, I need I need to get paid like today because <laughs> I'm giving all the money that I'm getting paid uh, to Epo to, to buy to buy that property in Du Riviere. And, uh, what did Jack say? Um, Jack was like, Oh really? (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I was like, yeah, he's like, okay. And I mean, and then, you know, he he sent me the money and the deal that Epo and I struck was that I would give him $20,000 that year. And then I would give him $20,000 the following year, at which point, um, I, uh, I, I could then buy the property for a predetermined price of $340,000 minus the two payments of 20,000. So two years later, I owed him $300,000. And the idea was that over those two years, I would, I would get my financial credit, my credit worthiness to a place where I could qualify for a, a mortgage. And so uh, we did, we, we did, we did that deal, it worked out well. And then in August of 2014, I took ownership of the property legally. And, um, <clears throat> and then... Uh, I forgot you didn't legally own it for a while. Yeah. I thought, was it a three-year option? Deal? Two year. Two year. Yeah. Okay. Two year. So then <clears throat> after that, I, uh, there was a house on the property and then there was eight cabins and it's a, it's a 12 acre, well, 12 and a half, 13 acre property. Um, so the first thing I did was I severed the property into two. And wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Had you started living here yet? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. So oh, yeah. as soon as you put the first 20 grand in, yeah, this I took, was your I took possession. Like I, yeah, this was my home. Yeah. And where did you first choose to live? 
Well, there was a house uh, in that old house. So but I, did you ever live in that house? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for for the old, it was like a at railway least, house. At least a couple winters, yeah. It wasn't an old railway house, but it had pieces from the old railway station that he oh. had put onto the house. No, no. Okay. No, no. It was the <laughs> actual old railway yeah, house. So the story with that house yeah. is that really? yeah, yeah, so this this property used to be it's situated when I bought it there was train tracks running through the property, like between the property and the water. Um, cause it's situated on the Ottawa river and, um, two years after I, I owned it, they started removing the tracks and, and there was an old radio tower right in front here and they removed that radio tower and all the radio, old radio lines. Um, anyway, so yeah, I, I lived in that house for at least a couple winters and while living through in that house for a couple winters, I learned a lot, which was the winters out here are really harsh, really cold, and you need a properly functioning indoor space to survive out here. And I, after two years of battling with frozen pipes and trying to keep <laughs> that old crummy house warm throughout the win- winter with two wood stoves. Which is just bleeding heat. Just bleeding heat. It was, yeah. it was as if there was like the fully there was exposed. Two wood stoves? Yeah, yeah, there was full exposure to the outdoors and cer- certain like crawl spaces of the building. And yeah. it was a mishmash of mish, that building. Yeah. <laughs> Overrun with mice. Overrun with mice. There was the occasional ferret that would show up in the winter. <laughs> the odd Martin that would, 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 that would take burl its way into the house. Cause in the it middle. was also just empty when you were I'd wake up, I'd wake up in the morning and there'd be like Martin poo on the countertop. Oh, anyway. oh man. <laughs> I got to the point where I was like, we're done here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was like, I'm tearing this building down first off, and then I'm going to build a new house because I always wanted to build my own house. So, um, you know, that was, that was what I had in mind. So I, I, I went for it. And, and a year later I, I, I tore that building down and started construction of that house, uh, the new house, um, in, in 2015. Yep. So one year after I legally owned the property, um, and in that in that one year process before I started building it, I had severed a one acre lot off of the existing property. So, um, yeah. So the one acre lot allowed me to build a house, and uh, that's what I did. I built a one thousand square foot house. Um, I had a bit of experience helping Jack, who's again, the owner of the company I worked for, helping him build the house that he now lives in. Uh, and that taught me enough to have a go at my own house. And also Jack helped me a bit. And I had two other guys who were working with me at the time, helped me with it as well. Mm-hmm. So this, this, I have a question about building your first house, because on the one hand, you know, you're, you're, I think when you build this house on this property, you're saying, this is going to be my, my permanent place. And constructing something with your own hands is more significant than just buying a piece of property or buying an existing uh, structure. So, but also I think growing up, you know, you come from a family, as Rose and I both know, where we moved around a lot. So for you, the significance of building your own home might run a little bit deeper. Why is it that you think, Matt, you had this internal desire to construct a building from the ground up? Um, Well, from a young age, I was always really interested in building. Um, 
I don't know if you guys remember at the cottage. The treehouse? Well, whatever you want to Ram call it. Ram Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What was that? Yeah. It, was like... it was basically Freddie and Marianne, who owned the cottage next door to us, had yeah. all these leftover building materials because they were they were renovating. Or yeah. They were, remember, they were raising their cottage. Right, yeah. And, and, and so I'd go over there, and I would get all these, like, scrap materials, and I thought it was just so cool, like nails, and someone gave me a hammer, and I got these, like, sheets of... Of like that little like that thin fake wood, that fake wood yeah, that, that covers old, things. Yeah, like what they used before drywall, basically. Um, anyways, and then, yeah, then I just started kind of constructing my own forts outside by the tree. <laughs> and we had nails and yeah. a hammer. Yeah, and just nails, nails and a hammer. So I don't know where it came from. You know, I, I've learned that we come from a lineage of home builders. Really? That, that our great grandfather. Yeah. So on dad's side. Grandpa's um, father and Grandpa built that cottage. Yeah, that's they right. Had on that's right. Yeah, yeah. Good yeah. yeah. So grandpa, okay, cool. Yeah. So that's Grandpa's so cool. father was yeah, that. was a builder. Yeah. Um, so maybe you know it's in our lineage. I don't know if part of it is genetics, but mm-hmm. um, no. Really, what it was also, I just always believed that uh, life starts with a place of permanence. You know, and mm-hmm. that everybody you need a home. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, I needed a home. Um, you know, my life is such that, like, I go into the bush for four months of the year for the tree plant every year. Mm-hmm. Um, so finding that per- permanence has been interesting. But, yeah, it was a place to call home. And then, you know, and also I, I just felt that because I, I always leave for four months of the year, that it would be cool to have a place that I could maybe rent out while I was gone mm-hmm. and make a bit of money that way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so that's kind of where it came from. Yeah. Interestingly, though... Every year you were like, I'm selling this place. (laughs) (laughs) So there was on the one hand, this attachment to like building a home. And on the other hand, this maybe habit of being like, we're done. Let's get out. Let's move on to the next thing. No, you're right. It has been hard to like, well, like I just said, to kind of settle into that sense of permanence. Yeah. You know? I think it's actually taken until now. Yeah, yeah it, it kind of has. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and for the people that don't know, that's meant like the building of a second house, which is what we're sitting in right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's move into that. All right. Yeah. So talk about the transition from the first house. And- so I built the first house. It was it was on it was situated on that one acre property that I had severed off the original property which meant that I had this 12 acre property next door mm-hmm. with no house on it. And the planning act is such that you're allowed, you're allowed one house for one property. Right. Um, so I just thought kind of, it made sense to construct another, to construct a house on this property that didn't really have like a, a full season dwelling. So, um, you know, and I had learned, I had made my mistakes on the, on the first house and, I didn't see it as a, as a really hard undertaking. Um, I think building, Even though you like built it in the winter. Or yeah. Like... Yeah. I, um, in minus 20. Yeah. So, so basically <laughs> I got a little bit more ambitious. <laughs> I got a little bit more ambitious with the second house. The second house is like basically three, t- three times the size of the first house. Um, and what I didn't anticipate was what you just mentioned, which is like how far into the winter it would take me. So I started building it in the fall and this second house and, uh, yeah, it took me. So by by the, by the time the winter rolled around, which was January of 2016, um, no, sorry, 
January of 2018, because this is the second house. Um, by the time the winter rolled around, I didn't even have the roof on, like the, sh the shingles on the roof. So like it started snowing, it started raining, the ice started piling up in the, in the, in, inside the house. And I struggled that winter to get the roof on and get it enclosed. And um, like I was telling you guys early this morning mm -hmm. while we were eating brunch, like there was a time in January when it was minus 30 outside. <laughs> the wind was like howling down the river and I was up on the roof <laughs> trying to get the sheets of plywood onto the roof. Nicole was, was there passing them up to me. And uh, yeah, it was just, that's what it took to get, to get it done, you know? Cause I wasn't going to stop. Like I wasn't going to let the weather stop me. So I just battled through and I eventually got, got it on. And by March, I had it all sheeted and I hired a contractor to shingle it. And, mm. uh, so they shingled it, but then I was tasked with getting the six inches of ice out of the inside of the house. Right. Yeah. Which is, which is built up where in the house? Throughout the entire house. It was like, because it had snowed, right? And then the snow got in the house and then it, it snows froze. snows every day it here. snows every day here. <laughs> so what'd you do? So, uh, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> so, so I, I first tried to chisel it out with like a, with like an oh. ice pick. And I realized how long that was taking. So then, so then I, I brought in bags of salt and started to salt it to try to, to melt the ice. But that turned out to be like, a huge mistake because uh -huh. salt erodes concrete. Ooh. And so I ended up putting salt on large areas of the concrete, which eroded it, which eroded the top layer of the concrete, which meant that my floor was now not super flat. Right. And yeah. it was like, you know, these little rock pieces and chiseled out pieces. No way. Yes. Yeah, so that's partially why this floor in some spots is, is a bit messed up. This hardwood floor that I put on top of it because yeah, there's these, because of that, it was really, really hard to recover from that. And <laughs> Nicole's dad, who was an engineer, later told me, like, he was the one that was like, you're an idiot. Like, why did you, like, like he didn't, he didn't say, he told Nicole that that was totally the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. And she was like, yeah. And then, and then I got ridiculed by her, both her brother and her dad, because oh. they're both engineers. <laughs> But man, live and learn. Like, uh, you know, I, that was a cataclysmic mistake. For people who don't know, you have to say who Nicole is. You know Nicole's my ex-girlfriend. Yeah, we were together for four years. And, and uh, she was like passing you the sheets of she was a, she, 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 she helped me build this house at, yeah. at times, you know. Mm. And uh, she was a huge support throughout the building of this house. Yeah, you see her hand handiwork a lot in the, in the other house as well. Yeah, yeah. She, she had her like, touch. She's got her touch all over yeah. this place and that place. She, built, she helped build that deck out there. The one in the other house? Yep. Uh, yeah. She built the garden there. Yeah, she did all the garden. Yeah, she did a lot. She has a, a lot to do with how beautiful this place is. Well, to take, take things in just a, a slightly different direction, please. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, Rose and I earlier were talking about a couple questions we wanted to ask you, and I thought that you w would probably have insights into uh, something that's on a lot of people's minds these days, which is the environment, um, because you've spent so much time, you know, outdoors, planting trees, watching the harvest, mm -hmm. seeing what's going on year by year in terms of uh, the regeneration of other trees and uh, you know, the labors that you put in around it. So 
just maybe comment a little bit, Matt, what, what you've seen in your, your line of work with the way our forests are behaving in Canada okay. and, and maybe give us your view on climate change or, um, yeah, just, just generally what, uh, what, what, what people should be aware of or concerned about mm-hmm. and, uh, or maybe not concerned about. Yeah, it's, good, it's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I've worked in the, in the, in the forests and the bush, we call it, uh, this the coming, this coming season will be my 13th season. Okay. Um, so I've, I, I, I consciously take note of, of the changes, um, I, I, I can see in the bush, you know, from each year, year after year. And I've noticed quite a bit of change. Uh, I also I also talk a lot to the various forests foresters that I work with and ask them what they're seeing. When you say the bush, you mean in Ontario? Maybe name a couple of the forests just so people know. Where, where so Ontario is broken up into different forest units, um, and there's you know, in the area that we're in, we're, we're in the Ottawa Valley Forest, but there's the, you know there's several there's over. 30, 40 different forest units in Ontario. So okay. as tree planters, we work in, in several different forest units located okay. throughout, throughout the, uh, the province. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, some of the changes I've seen, um, I mean, definitely the, just, just the overall hot days that we experience out there um, have gotten more intense. Um, the number of wildfires uh, seems to be growing every year. We had, you know, in this area, just down, just down the highway here, about 20 minutes is a place called Bissett Creek. And we've done tons of work in Bissett Creek. And, um, you know, so areas that we've, that we planted over 10 years ago that we've then thinned, which is like brush cutting, you cut the competition around the planted tree. We've thinned them once, some of them we've thinned them twice. Um, and a couple of years ago, there was a wildfire fire that went through that area and destroyed all that work we had done. Goodness. So, yeah. So you know that that, that you know that was a real, for, especially for the forester um, who runs that forest. That was like an emotional experience for her. You know all this work that you put into renewing these logged areas yeah. that then get um, destroyed by a wildfire. I mean, wildfires are a natural occurrence, but it seems that as we have more hot days, uh, there are more wildfires kicking up. And, and that's a real concern for me as, as I, you know, in terms of my views on climate change is just that as, as things continue to warm up, the bush, when it gets dry, it's so easy to light up so quickly, like so quickly, like just a, like a little spark can ignite like what turns into thousands of hectares of wildfire. So, um, that's my biggest concern, but my climate change views are that we're, we have a major crisis that the planet is warming. Um, it, 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 it kind of warms a little bit more every year um, around the hot months of the year, around the summertime months. And, you know, we also see things like browning, uh, certain areas of the bush that the theory here, from what I understand, is that um, occasionally there's been these like suddenly warm periods in the winter months where like the temperatures go up to 15, 15, 20 degrees just suddenly and then drop back down to like minus 25. So that kind of like tricks the trees. It's kind of the weather saying, come on, come on out of hibernation, right? To the trees and then the trees start to act as if it's springtime, but then they're shocked. Their system is shocked by this plummeting in temperature, right? So it, it has the effect of killing off certain swaths of trees 
And so when you fly, if you're flying in a helicopter and you're looking at the bush, you can see these areas that are all brown. That's just dead trees. And it's, 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 it's from, they think it's partially from that. The other thing is of course, insects um, that are <clears throat> destroying the forests. Uh, the pine beetles, the most notable one. Um, we don't see that so much in Ontario. Um, we have different insect problems uh, popping up here and there. Um, but yeah, that's having a major impact on, like it's, it's, they're eating away the trees. So for the, for, for the forest management operators, they're, 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 the, the companies that manage the forest, they're losing their wood supply. And so this is having an impact on um, the mill's ability to, to, to source wood. So, you know, I could go on and on, but the bottom line is that uh, I, I worry more and more about climate change. Um, and um, I... I, you know, I think we're, we're doing a good job in terms of planting trees, but we're not planting as many trees that we need to be, uh, you know, just to give you some quick numbers. In, in Canada, we plant roughly 600 million trees a year, right? But that's, that's just to restore all the logged areas, or not even all of them, uh, just a certain percentage of the logged areas that, that get logged in Canada. So it's uh it's certainly not doing much on the climate front but it's uh it's something and I, and i hope that we can you know build our company to uh put more trees in the ground for climate purposes we'll see what happens government's starting to come through with that kind of funding but that's like another business altogether so to kind of move um move what you're talking about there into like a bit of a description about your work can you talk a little bit about you know, what it is that you started out doing with the company that you're doing, how tree planting is like regeneration of forests, um, what you've done to grow the company's work uh, in, you know, this province and um, where you kind of see yourself going. Okay. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So like how forestry works in Ontario is that, like I was saying earlier, you have the province divided up into various forest units. Each unit is managed by a management company. Sometimes that management company is a sawmill itself, but usually it's a private management company. And um, the law is in, in Ontario, um, natural resources, uh, well, forestry is provincial jurisdiction, uh, but the law is that uh, you have to renew, uh, you have to reforest uh, all the areas that are logged. And there's a variety of methods to reforest an area. One of them is tree planting. Um, so the com I started working for this company in 2009. Uh, the company is called Heritage Reforestation. And at the time, it was a cowboy operation, basically. Uh, I mean, but the state of the industry was also kind of in its cowboy days back then also. Um, but for me, it was just, you know, I was in third year university and I just... I just loved it. Like I just, I loved, I loved escaping in the summers to the, to the North. And I loved seeing the North and experiencing it and being, being outside and, and working hard. Um, it was just right up my alley. So I, I returned to work for the company because, um, I was offered a little bit more money the following year and I, I, it helped me pay off. I was in debt to my landlord at university. Uh, I couldn't pay my rent because I was just, I, I was a student who didn't know how to manage money. And um, yeah, I just, I came back to try to earn enough money to return to school the following year and finish my studies. Um, and I 
I did that. Um, and, and I carried on to keep working in the company after I finished my studies because I liked the nature of the annual workflow of the, of the job, which is that, you know, we work really hard for four to six months. And then in the winter months, we, we, you know, there's no trees getting planted in the winter months. So we're off work. Um, and <clears throat> that allowed me to go traveling in those early years. I, I traveled overseas, um, and, you know, and traveled the world. And, uh, and I thought that was a really cool lifestyle, you know, to work for half the year and travel for the other half the year. It is a really cool lifestyle. Yeah. The freedom that that lifestyle creates in your life to get into different projects on the side. And, you know, you built these two that's houses right. and it's, uh, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. So I, you know, to me, that's a good, it's a good balance of work life and play, you know, and, and pursuing my hobbies. And that's what I always wanted in my kind of like post secondary education life. You know, after university, I wanted a life that wasn't like a nine to five, sit at a desk all day long. Like I wanted to be outside. I wanted to be working sometime, but also be not working sometime. So this uh, gave me that, those options, the options to, you know, to have that life. Um, and yeah, and then I, I ended up uh, crew bossing for the company, which meant that I managed like a tree planting crew. Um, that went really well. I really enjoyed that. And then I eventually was asked to start supervising um, like several crews of tree planters, um, which is around the time that you came on starting mm -hmm. to work yeah, with me. That was my first year, yeah. your first supervision year. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Two crews. I that's had right. no idea what I was doing, neither did you. That's right. We floundered, we made it through. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I just kept supervising. It's a recurring teams. theme, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Ramshackle turns to gold. <laughs> yeah. So Rose came on as the camp cook for my camps, which was great. Um, and just nice to have a sibling there, but also she's a great cook. Um, and yeah, so I kept running bigger and bigger, supervising bigger and bigger camps every year. And then, you know, I became obviously a kind of a pretty integral part of the company. And uh, I've just been trying to make the processes uh, in the company more efficient over the years and, and make it into a better company that um, where people feel um, happy to work here and, and, they, and they, you know, earn, earn a lot of money and have a positive work experience um, and it's been it's been a battle like over the years like tree planting is a really tough business um, you know there's a high turnover of, of workers and uh, not everybody leaves the season satisfied and so um, yeah I would say the nature of the work is that you finish the season disgruntled well, and that's not a reflection necessarily on anything but the nature of the work. Yeah, I don't know if that if everybody finishes the season disgruntled. I certainly hope not, but No, I know, but I mean like after working your body that physically hard, by the end of it you're Yeah, you're, you're exhausted. Just toast. You're exhausted, but yeah. you're also filled with this really rewarding feeling of I just accomplished a great deal, you know, for the planters. I think that takes a couple of weeks to sink in. Sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely by the end. Depends. Every year is a little bit different. But yeah, so I basically carried on supervising. And then now, you know, it's turned into a pretty large company. I'm very involved. Um, 
I, yeah, I oversee a lot of things, a lot, a lot of the, uh, some of the other camps now and, uh, some of the other, um, operations within the company. We don't just do tree planting anymore. We, we, we do, you know, brush cutting. We have a whole heavy equipment division. We have, uh, we do a lot of things. So yeah, so it's been, it's been great. It's been interesting for me because I've gotten to see the inner workings of uh, a small company become kind of a medium company, um, become what I would describe as a kind of large company. I mean, I don't know, 500 employees now is, in my opinion, pretty, pretty big. Yeah. So it's been fascinating to see what it takes to turn a company into that size and seeing the trials and tribulations um, but one thing's true is that is is that I uh, I'm glad I've stuck with it and seen it through and because I've learned a lot. That's great. Yeah. I um, I want to ask you another question. Just going back to the beginning of the at the episode, we pointed out that you were born in 1988 and that you're a twin. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell the listeners what it's like being a twin? There's all sorts of things that are out there. You know, people talk about twins can feel what's happening in each other, in each other's lives. Um, being born as a twin means that you're not getting as much attention at, at a younger age, maybe. Um, you know, you're a fraternal twin, so not identical. You had this person growing up alongside you. Maybe if you could comment just a little bit on what your perspective is like growing up as a twin, briefly. And then if we can, uh, we'd love to have you place a song for our listeners that, uh, something that you wrote. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Well, we'll get to the song after, I guess. But, um, yeah, on being a twin, um, yeah, it's a really special thing, you know, like, uh, being a twin is, is, a, is a gift, you know, it's something that most people don't get to share in, you know, um, and I'm still discovering uh, the, the the beautiful things of being a twin. I don't have all the answers to this question, but um, <clears throat> I know that you know just that bond at a young age was was there and uh, is is always there. And um, I care deeply about my twin sister, and I know she does about me. And um, you know, we growing up over the years. Um, we we see what happened was we went to different high schools and we were in school together oftentimes in the same class for like all of elementary school but in high school I went to an arts high school in kind of in in North York in Toronto and Rach went to the the high school that most of the people from our elementary school went to which was St. Rob's in Thornhill and uh so you know, we naturally developed different friend groups in, in each of our schools. And, uh, yeah, and we, and we, we, we lived different lives and, and, and that, that carried on into university. Rach went to McGill, I went to Queens and, but then after university and, and, uh, you know, you get, you get older, right. And you, and you kind of start to reflect on your childhood and your upbringing and everything. And, uh, I, it's been it's been important for me to stay connected with Rach, you know, as we grow into adulthood and and to be there for each other, and that's where that's where we're at now. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Yeah. All right, let's hear the song. Well, just some context, like, <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 so Rose and Dave, like. 
listen, I'll do it. The idea yeah, is the idea is that music is a bit is a part of our family. We are, we're all musical. We grew up with music. There was always a piano in our home. Uh, there was always a guitar in our home. And over the years, each one of us, I don't know if there's any one of us who hasn't picked up an instrument. Uh, whether it be the piano or the guitar, or when we were younger, Matt, you used to play the trumpet, which drove us all nuts when you were in <laughs> elementary school. Also the piano. Yeah, and then yeah. you picked up the piano. Anyways, and you've picked up the guitar recently. Yeah, and the guitar man. is so great because it's just like a portable instrument. And if I may just tell a quick story about our season in the bush this year, 2020, um, I had my daughter Chloe there, who was eight months when we entered the bush, and and uh, Luke was Luke, my partner, was there as well. And at the end of every day, not every day, but most days, Uncle Matt would come and bring his guitar and play songs for Chloe. So I feel like in the last twelve months, your connection with the guitar has really gotten bigger, and you've started to like, you know, write little songs here and there. And whenever we write music, it's always a reflection of what it is that we're experiencing at the time. And um, and if I may introduce the song for you, well, I'm gonna say something. <laughs> this but... one uh, was born in the tree plant. Yeah and is about someone that you and I have worked closely with named Abrilla. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so basically this, um, I started, I started playing guitar in January. Well, really in March when COVID hit, cause everyone was at, like locked at home and I had a guitar and I was like, well, there's no better time to pick it up than now. So I started playing and then in the summertime, this season in the bush, uh, yeah, I, a close friend of mine, her name is Debrilla, and her and I often hang out after work together in my trailer. And um, she's, she's a very unique person and, and a very close friend and just, just uh, yeah, we've just, we have great time together. And she tragically lost her mother uh, this past, uh, last winter. Um, her mom passed away suddenly, unexpectedly. And um, the reason I say that is because, so every year during the tree plant, we do a talent show. And uh, Debrilla and I had been kind of messing around in my trailer uh, on the guitar. And I, I, I started to write this song about Debrilla herself, but, but her, her mom is also named Debrilla. So by the time it came, time for the talent show I, I i introduced this song and uh as a tribute to to debrilla's mom who passed away so it's got good okay. yeah okay hang on i gotta <laughs> figure out the beat here So long 
Those blue eyes That yellow sweater too And all those rosy cheeks And her laughter too Brilla, I love you. Even when you're cranky, I still love you. Those cargo pants and her red truck too. She's not into dudes And all those earrings You can see right through And all that booty With that sweet tattoo Brilla, I love you. Even when you're cranky, I still love you. But when she's angry and in a still love you <laughs> thank you so yeah so we're done we're done